Good morning, uh, Jul- uh, July 7. Thanks to our two teachers when I was gone, Rock and, and uh, Nate Green. In fact, the handout Rock prepared is here if you missed it a couple weeks ago. This morning, I'm going to go back to our study on conflict resolution, and <clears throat> let's pray. Our God, we worship you this morning as the God who has reconciled us to himself. Though we didn't know it, we had great conflict with you. And you have come to us, you've changed our hearts, you've opened our eyes to see the glory of God in Jesus Christ. We thank you for the power of your cross. It calls us uh, to yourself in peace and it calls us to one another in peace. So give us grace and wisdom as we talk through what it looks like together to deal with conflict. Uh, It's inevitable in a fallen world. Help us by your spirit. We pray for Jesus' sake. Amen. Let's start with a colorful handout here. This guy called Dissecting the Sources of Our Conflict. The assumption behind the handout is that when there's, you've got conflict with somebody, there may be more going on than you realize. And this is my attempt to tease out an answer to some of the things that might be going on. Here's how the handout works. Go to the left, and there you are. And on the right is somebody you're having conflict with. And the handout moves from left to right. It doesn't work. Well, the person you're in conflict with, the things on the right-hand side have to do with them. No, everything has to do with you as you're looking at another person. And so if you wanted to put yourself in the other person's shoes, then you need to... Uh, flip to the other side and so everything I'm going to say applies to me as I'm thinking about conflict with another person and there's generally two sources of conflict external and internal so look at the external pressures that can create or uh, exacerbate conflict at the top the devil he's the angriest person in the universe he's the accuser the liar the deceiver the slanderer and a murderer you should expect some sort of spiritual warfare at work behind our conflicts with people. Satan's in conflict with you. You woke up this morning and he's at war with you. And when there are good, healthy Christian relationships, good, healthy Christian marriages, he hates those. Because what does a healthy Christian marriage portray to the watching world? What's the picture? The body of Christ and the love of Jesus for his church. He hates Jesus more than he hates you and anybody that's associated with Jesus he hates and is plotting to overthrow. So Satan is usually an instigator uh, behind our conflicts. So you pray against that. Moving across the top right part of the page, there can be difficult, painful circumstances. A lot of conflict in marriage we've seen is due to financial troubles, uh, troubles with relationships beyond you, etc. Okay, so difficult, painful circumstances. Going underneath then, external pressures on the uh, bottom left, sometimes inadequate time and environment can contribute to our conflict. People aren't spending the time together they need to. There's a tough environment. And uh, that's why I heard the saying, never fall in love on a vacation. (laughs) Because on a vacation, your relationship isn't subject to the normal time pressures that come with having to get up and go to work, having to do... You maintain a life and a house. 
And then, you know who I heard that? I told you this before, I heard that from an atheist Fosse professor when I was at Gettysburg College. So one thing I remember that he taught me, never fall enough on vacation. All right, and then moving across the bottom, more external pressures, sometimes our conflicts can be uh, due to deficient leadership, lack of commitment to a unified purpose or direction. Oftentimes in marriage, that would be a failure of whom to lead well. Husband. Right. So I want to take responsibility in my marriage for certain conflicts because it may be a failure on my part to keep Janice and me in a unified purpose and a direction. Remember, where, where was Adam when Eve was being tempted? Where was he? He was right there, not acting on her behalf, not stepping in, not saying, don't listen to that liar. Come on, honey, follow my lead. Adam wasn't doing that, and he's right there. So those are some examples of external pressures. Can you add any to the chart that you can think of? External pressures that exacerbate our conflicts with people. There are probably some I've left off. If you think of some, let me know. We'll improve the handout. Now let's look at the internal pressures. And we're going to start over by the black me there, and we're going to move left to right. Because, they, because as I think about all that can be going on, this isn't necessarily present in every conflict, but it's worth trying to dig deeply and ask the question, what's going on in my thinking, my heart, my motives, my assumptions, what's going on, all the way over to the way I deliver my communication, which is the far right side there underneath those two hours, posture and communication. So let's, let's start left and move right thinking about internal pressures that uh, create conflict. On the top there, presuppositions. I may be entertaining unrealistic expectations in a relationship. There may be unfulfilled expectations. There may be unrighteous anger. And what is anger? Anger is having a goal that is blocked. So if you have a goal, I want to get around the beltway at 65 miles an hour, and you're out there at 5 o'clock, you're probably angry because your goal's being blocked. A goal that's called into question results in anxiety. A loved one, you want them safely landing at BWI, there's lightning storms all around the airport, heavy rain, the jet's coming in through the lightning. You're feeling anxious because your goal is to get your loved one on the ground, and that goal is being called into question by the way. Okay? So whenever you're angry at someone in a relationship, you can stop and ask, what am I demanding, what am I insisting, what am I requiring, what goal do I have vis-a-vis that relationship that is being blocked? A lot of times you're angry because you want your spouse to respect you, to help you, to affirm you, not control you. There are, so this is, um, emotions are excellent indicators, windows, into things we're demanding. Excellent. So that's one thing, presuppositions. Does that make sense? Stop and ask. What are my presuppositions? What's the, what am I assuming? Am I do I have unrealistic expectations? How many of us very, very subtly in our heart of hearts want our spouse to be perfect? I do. 
Do I want me to be perfect to my spouse? Oh, I get it. I get it. I get a pass. <laughs> but why is it we want to be married to a sinless Adam or Eve? Why? Don't you want to be married to a person who loves you perfectly and serves you perfectly and just is absolutely uh, stunning in the way they care for you? Why is that? Selfish. What's that? I'm selfish. Well, I'm selfish, but I'm saying there's a good reason you want that. In the garden. In the garden. If you were in the garden together before the fall, you would be loved perfectly by name, flawlessly. There would be unspeakable joy and love, complete fulfillment in the way you were loved by your spouse before sin. And that, I call that a, um, a fossil in the soul. That desire is still in us. But we live in a Genesis 3 world. That's why we have to adjust expectations. Okay? Yes, Rob? Just on your chart. Are you saying the presuppositions is an internal pressure? Yes, I am. So, but it appears above the line here. It shouldn't. That's I can blame my secretary for that. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's not fair. And we all want to have a perfect secretary. Yeah. <laughs> we have one who's pretty near perfect. Chris is great. So, but you can blame this on me. She only puts on the paper what I give her. Right. So yeah, presupposition is an internal pressure. Did you get a handout? Did, I? Did you get a handout? Come on, Fabby, get with the program. <laughs> Just kidding. Anything you want to say or add about unrealistic expectations, unfulfilled expectations, unrighteous anger? Nate? Sometimes they're uncommunicated expectations or miscommunicated, so you're frustrated because you think they're supposed to be doing something that you talked about, and then, well, you forgot to talk about it, or Good. You, when you did talk about it, they took something else. Good. And, and that's going to get over here to poor communication, right, closest to, to the other person. But um, we're, we're all sub, sub, uh, subject to that, aren't we? Not communicating well, not being honest about expectations. The closer the friendship, the more open and honest you can be about that. That's what, friend, that's what friends can be. Let's move down then from presuppositions to previous history. Internal pressures that might be the source of our conflict. In this relationship, there is some distrust historically. You may be still holding a grudge about something they did or didn't do to you. A root of bitterness. Unresolved anger. Obviously, those things present color the way you view the other person in this conflict. And look. They may have done something to lose your trust. That's okay. If someone has repeatedly failed you in completing an assignment, for example, you shouldn't send a message in the hand of the fool, says Proverbs, because it won't get there, it won't get delivered. Any reflection on, the, on this? Previous history in the relationship. Now, if you're married, what do you need to do about grudge, bitterness, and unresolved anger? If you're married. Stay out till it's fixed. There you go. Don't let the sun go down in pain, stay. Don't, don't let the sun go down on your anger. you got to fix it. But you do let people say that they don't have control over it. They can't let go of it. They can't uh, forget it or forgive or... 
people say that they don't have contact. This is a good advice. Uh, yeah. But someone says, I can't. I can't. I cannot. Uh, 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 forget about my graduates or uh, or uh, dissociate myself from the bypass experience or whatever is on the list. Good. So I don't have, if I may say this, I don't have any hope for unbelievers doing this, but all hope for believers doing that because of the power of Christ. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. You may be saying, though, what is your name? Milan. Milan. Mm -hmm. You may be saying, you may be making the point that forgiveness doesn't require forgetting. You can't scrape certain things from your memory like you can from a computer. But forgiveness is, in light of what happened, adjusting the way the relationship is going. Is that what you're saying? Sometimes you can't forget, but you can act in a way as if you're not holding that thing against the person and doing them only in that light. Yeah, but uh, the idea is that you free yourself from these things, that they don't affect you anymore. Uh, and people say, I pray, I read Bible, you know, and I still is acting the same. I'm the same way I was. Uh, so, so. so the root of bitterness is really a hold on that. Somebody described bitterness as a pill you swallow, a poison you swallow, and hope the other person dies. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> Isn't that powerful? <laughs> bitterness is a poison you swallow and hope the other person dies. Because bitterness only kills you. So I think we've got to run to Jesus and ask for the, only the healing he can give us in this. It's Dave English, right? That's correct. Yes, sir. Welcome. Thank you. Are you assuming that the person uh, involved who, against whom the problem, we feel the offense, whatever it is, has actually changed, has asked forgiveness, admitted they're wrong, or are you just saying we forget about all that? They're relevant things, yeah. In, in the service of keeping the relationship going, we may need to talk to, them, talk to them about those things, and if they refuse to forgive you, that's on them, isn't it, at that point? I'm saying... I think he's talking about somebody who you have that against them. They've done something to you. And they have lost you. trust. Yeah. It affects you. cannot trust them. For, and let's say it's for a legitimate reason. Right. That's right. I, you can't assign When people, someone's lost your trust, it takes a long time to gain it back. So there's a difference between forgiving and trusting. Those are the, the consequences of what someone does to you is different than forgiving. You must forgive them you don't have to trust them. So you have to forgive them. Uh, you know, they, they kill my daughter, and I have to forgive them. Yes. Interesting. Does God do that? That's what He's done to us. We killed His son, and He forgives us. But we are repentant. He does not do it to the unrepentant, does He? He does not. So, so how? Why, why would we be better than He, or are we violating Him if we forgive the unrepentant? I'm thinking of the words of when Jesus in Matthew 6 is, if you don't forgive, neither will my Father forgive you. Uh, but that has a larger context. You could take the one on the cross, that'd be a better one. But he forgives them because they don't know. So he's not, that doesn't absolve them of everything. But, you know, the, the level of what they're doing is horrendous, but they have no idea of how horrendous. Yeah. But also, um, we don't. Sin has consequences, and we don't forget sin because sin brings brokenness, and that brokenness reminds us how we are not 
in God's level or how we fail God. And if I have to decide to forgive, I cannot, and like I said, it's, it's on me to forgive or not to forgive. Like I, Swedish kids in school to us, I never make, I would teach, I never make to be friends again, but I say, you can tell them what I did to you was wrong, or you can say, forgive me. It is on the other person's ball, the court ball, to decide if I'm going to forgive you. And I tell them, I give them the options. You can say, I cannot forgive you right now. I forgive you. We're not going to forgive you. But the problem becomes to the other person. And that's kind of a little bit how, how I see like People have sinned against you, and they have not, and serious sin, and they have not asked for forgiveness. Mm. It's different than the case. But in my heart, yes, but, but the same way, but in my heart, the ball is in my court if I want to forgive them or not, even though they didn't ask me for forgiveness. And when the pillow I swallow, I can, I can be bitter against them, and, and trust me, I have been. And it only, it only makes me it only affects me more. They out there living their lives. That's right. Yeah. And I'm here thinking about how they wrong me. And that is eating me alive. So, and, and forgiveness is not forgetting. I haven't forgotten a thing. And the brokenness that, that it causes is too broken. Because there is no reconciliation in the relationship. But I can't forgive without Reconcile. I can't forgive without trust. Well, I think I would, I would count it. I don't know how much you want to go into this, but this is very important because I think we, I think there's a real question whether we forgive the unrepentant. Yeah. Uh, that is a violation of God's character, if I am correct. And we have been misled. Now, we are commanded to do something equivalent. That's the lower end. Right. But a person who is still in that posture of having violated me and has no sense of any wrong there, they're not even bothered by it. In fact, they may be gleeful in it. Oh, yeah, no. And in that case, what business have I to forgive them? In fact, Scripture talks about this very interesting passage that we hardly ever read, uh, talking about Christians as uh, a group or as a pair. Those whose sins you forgive are remitted. And those who sin to retain are retained. So obviously, in certain cases, we are to retain and not to forgive. So I think we need to think through this more. I do think the, the equivalent idea of, of having real mercy and grace and hopefulness that that person might reverse is valid. But I think we labor under a false burden. There's a real problem out of that. Because God never lives malalai. Does not live in some fantasy world in which this evil or vile person is not considered. Oh, I'm not so bad. Well, I don't think forgiveness requires us to say that. Rock and then Nate. Uh, the conversation moved a little bit, but uh, but I, I think it is important that, uh, to emphasize that Jesus says, you know, if your if your uh, brother asks for repentance. We're required to. Yeah, that's right. And uh, Peter was, uh, he, got, he got the message on radical that it was because he says, you know, well, suppose that the guy, you know, is, isn't genuine in his repentance and he 
forgave him seven times. You want me to do that seven times? He said, uh, 70 times seven. Yeah. But I, I would question whether he means he's not genuine. You're, you're right in what you're thinking, that the unremitted repetition finally undermines the repentance. But in the, in what Jesus said, uh, he's not saying that he's not a, a genuine uh, uh, changer, a definite changer. I think it's helpful for us to remember that uh, sin is against us, but it's also against God. And ultimately, whether or not we forgive them um, is secondary, whether God forgives them is primary. And so uh, I remember the case of the guy who years ago that went into a church in South Carolina and shot up a bunch of people. And then after that, the church came out with a statement that said, we forgive this guy. Um, that made me think about this issue quite a bit because that guy wasn't known. And um, I think it's good if you have the opportunity to put context around that and say something like, uh, we've been, because of the amount of debt that we've been forgiven, we certainly uh, recognize that um, we can't hold things against other people. But at the same time, it doesn't really matter if we forgive you because unless you repent, God's not going to forgive you. So I, just to put out a little statement that says we forgive you without them repenting, to me, is a little bit problematic. I think if you would want to take that opportunity to be able to uh, present the gospel to that person. And then, um, again, if anyone if anyone asks for forgiveness, I don't think we have any call on right. to forgive them. Right. But, but in this case, if you have someone who says, I'm just going to do this, and I don't really care, um, to just make it seem like everything's okay, when everything's not okay with God, it's doing someone a disservice. So, I think there's just a lot of levels, which is one, God has to forgive them, they have to repent to God, but it doesn't do us any good to hold the bitterness in our heart if a person is not repentant. But, but, that's all, but also, you can the other side of that coin, which is, we all need to remember how much we've been forgiven if we're going like, to hold on to something that someone else has done, whether or not they repent of that or not. Yeah, thank you. And then we'll move on. We'll move on. Thank well, you. I, I'm wondering here, you know, what we're sort of talking about this just in, in relationships in general, but in the context of marriage, if, you, if you've got some uh, some difference here or some something that needs to be repented of that hasn't been repented, you know, if you haven't resolved that issue yet, right? Right. Go get help. But if, uh, but if uh, your spouse has uh, asked for forgiveness and you're still harboring a grudge and distrusting them and carrying around bitter and angerness, Yeah, it's not good. <laughs> Mike? Yes, Shirley? When this, before we got really deep in talking about this, the way I was thinking about this was, in my experience, what I've observed is when two people marry, uh, it might not be conflict with each other, but you might be marrying a person who is the victim of trauma and carries with him or her scars that are still healing by the blood of the Lord, but it takes time. So one of the things that I've learned is that we cannot put time pressure on you know, shake it off, move on, that does not help. 
It takes time and perseverance and endurance and compassion, 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 to help bring a person along. Because a lot of times, deep, deeply hurtful sins have long-term consequences. It's like a very different scenario is parents who have a disabled child revisit chronic sorrow when certain time periods come as that child grows and the goal of your hope, oh I wanted to walk my daughter down the aisle but she's never going to walk down the aisle, you revisit that sorrow and it's not like you're dwelling in and stuck but it happens mm -hmm. and so it's just this and you, and you have to do it with help, I don't know any human Christians on the planet who can just do it by themselves. Of course, it's by God's word and deeply drawing to the Lord Jesus for help. But you have to go to others for help sometimes. And there are there's a section in our Christian community that is afraid of seeking help. Mm. To our own detriment, right? Yeah. Well, let's move across the page. Internal pressures, the middle three, perspective, pride, and preparation. Again, Simply asking, look within, what's going on? This may not be consciously, overtly obvious to you, but it's good to stop and ask yourself the question. As you're viewing, the perspective is, as you're looking at that other person, am I looking at them with a gospel lens? God hasn't given me what I deserve. I'm going to treat them with mercy. God has given me much more than I deserve. I'm going to treat them with grace. Look at all your conflicts through a gospel lens. Otherwise, what's, our, what's typically our natural way of doing this is with the lens of justice. You should get what you deserve, and I'm going to be deliverer of what you deserve. We typically innately re, uh, relate to other people with justice. Give them what they deserve. Not uh, seeking love. Right? Love bears all things, hopes all things, is patient, all those good qualities in 1 Corinthians 13. Love is asking the question, what is best for this other person? So maybe it's best in the situation to withhold forgiveness, to force that person to deal with the wretchedness of their sin. Maybe there's a situation there. Maybe in a situation it's best to forgive even if they haven't asked. Now, that's something Christians are disagreed on. Am I seeing my own logs? Remember how Jesus said before, you look at the speck in somebody else's eye, you don't even notice the log that's in your own. So we have this uncanny ability to see others' faults and miss our own. I've got logs in my eye I'm looking past so I can see your specks. Jesus said, first take the log out of your own eye, then you'll see clearly enough to spot the speck in somebody else's eye. So don't go speck hunting until you've been humble about your logs. And when you see your logs, what kind of heart is it going to give you? I just gave away the answer to the question. What kind of heart are you going to have if you've seen your own logs first? Humble, gentle, compassionate, kind as Jesus is because he took all your logs and he nailed them in his flesh on the cross. You killed Jesus with your logs. Okay, well that's going to taint the way I deal with somebody else's specs. Not seeing others as broken and precious. Human beings are profoundly broken. I'm broken. And yet, as broken as your spouse is, they're absolutely precious to Jesus. I think we lose sight of that. The people you're in conflict with are broken sinners, and if they're believers, precious.
to God. If they're not believers, they're made in the image of God. Deserving a certain level of dignity and respect simply by virtue of being image bearers. Um, any thoughts on perspective then? So think about your perspective, the lens through which you're viewing that person. Next, pride is almost always present in our hearts when it comes to conflict we have with other people. Is there selfish end? Doesn't mean they're necessarily present, but it's worth asking. Is there selfish ambition in this? Am I trying to get something for myself? Do I have a secret agenda? Am I puffed up, conceited beyond what is, uh, the gospel allows me to be? Is there a demandingness or over-desires? How is pride affecting my ability to resolve this conflict? In some way, am I, our pride is ever-present. And then underneath that, preparation as I'm Dealing with a conflict with another person, am I first seeking to be filled with the Spirit? If not, what can I pretty much guarantee? This is going to be filled with the flesh. <laughs> All the stuff above this. Am I praying for unity? Have I clothed myself in humility? Have I put on that servant's apron? That's the word in 1 Peter 5. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. Humble yourself under the mighty hand of God. Wait for him to exalt you. So when the, when the humble person puts on the apron, they exist to serve the other person. So am I serving myself or my spouse? What's fundamentally at work here? Am I here to serve, to bless, to look outwardly and meet their needs, or first about my needs? Any thoughts on perspective, pride, or preparation as an internal pressure? contributing to our conflict. Yes, Laura? I don't know how this fits exactly, but I'm interested in how you speak to this as far as uh, conflicts among small children, say sibling conflicts. Um, this is what we see a lot in our, our home. We have one child in particular that's like all they want, all frustrated, all frustrated, and just lashing out anger. And it's so easy, especially because of this child's age, to just deal with the you may not hit, you may not scream, you know, you, know, you can deal with the external behavior, and I feel like that's what I would give someone growing up. It's just stop that, stop that, crave. Um, and as they, you know, our older children were able to have more of a heart level conversation, but I'm not sure, sometimes, you know, I feel like we're not making progress in dealing with this child's behavior because we're not getting to the root of these issues here, but yet his his age makes it such that it's really hard to have these, you need God to save you from your selfish ambition conversations. And we do it, but it's not getting home for him. Yeah. So do we just keep having the conversations and the conflict keeps happening? Or do we, you know, where, where's, I think I mentioned in Bajan on the, the line we be dealing with in our kids. <laughs> Any thoughts? I have one or two, but I'd be happy for others to share. I think you've articulated really well at what point uh, do you move from being the police, just doing behavior and looking at the heart. Does that hit me? My, my comment is that kids are very transparent about their heart. This is mine, or he took that from me, or, or let me have it, you know. So it's right there on the surface, I suggest, that many times. That's exactly what the questions you raise you deal with. You get to do it more easily than you do with adults. We hide our intentions. Oh, yeah, we're very clever. <laughs>
we're sophisticated. Justified. That's what, that's what I say. We get to get. And, and the older you are in the Christian faith, if you're not careful, you get so sophisticated that you think you're right. Uh-oh. <laughs> and you're sin. So and that's why I, I agree with you. Like, the kids are right there. It's like, they, their heart is all up there. <laughs> yeah. Well, Shirley, and it's answered use, to Laura's question. Yeah. Can I use your whiteboard? Come on up. <laughs> Pictures are free in this class. Oh, let's, let's get rid of that. Okay. All right, so um, the child is having a hissy fit. And um, you, you can talk. All right, the, the secular world will say that developmentally, kids don't start taking perspective taking and realizing the impact of their behaviors on others before age 11 or 12. But you can make it happen sooner, but it has to be regularly trying to process. And sometimes when you've got someone who escalates to high-level emotions quickly, it helps to make it into a story, because stories are captivating. So they can draw their own picture of how they feel. You know, so whatever. Or you can draw the picture of how they're feeling in that moment mm -hmm. and um, say, is that right? Or is that wrong? Ding, ding, ding. Or eh, and then change it till it, it meets how they feel. Okay? And then the other members of the family, mom draws how she feels, dad draws how he feels, siblings draw how they feel, and God, cross or whatever. What do you think they're feeling right now? And it's just that. Now, maybe the younger child, it's simple little things like sad. You could do the thought bubbles. It's very captivating. It works with preschoolers and elementary kids. I do it all the time in conflict mm. resolution in my work. Mm. Nice and surely. Good. Put a scripture in there. <laughs> Any other con contributors to the discussion? Yes. Yes. Pray, pray, pray. I think uh, the helpful resource that a lot of Christians in our stripe have used is Paul, as Ted Tripp's Shepherding a Child's Heart. And I think he says, you know, when you're early, you, you just have to be the law. You have to, because they don't get it, you have to just stop doing that. And then as they get, just as you articulated, when you sense that their heart's more receptive, try to work at that level. So there's a gradual... Um, shepherding of their heart as they get older and are able to receive that. Yeah, and the grandparent raising a great kid, right? So I think mine is going to get the best parenting of all our kids because we, I think it's easier for us to look at him like, yeah, you too, that's what you do. No, if you throw the thing, you lost the thing. Bye-bye. Yeah. And he's trying to get it. He was in a, I'm going to hit everything and everybody thing. And against my best judgment in the court, I kind of said, him like, you're not going to hit me. You're just not going to hit me. Yeah. And or I held his hand. And like I said, in the police, I can't I can reason with my two-year-old. And, you know. But and then I tried to make him go to sleep by crying his eye off, and this, he hyperventilates, so we should figure that out. Yeah. <laughs> They do understand consequences, and I, that's what Proverbs teaches, is that kids understand, even one-year-olds understand consequences. They touch that, 
there's a little slap. They get it because they start crying. And, you know, no one's taught them how to sin, right? If you, if you don't believe in original sin, have kids. And just watch them before your eyes develop and turn into little sinners. So I, I witnessed this at, at, at a beach recently. Oh, don't hit your brother's sandcastle. Sandcastle was destroyed by the kid. Do you need a timeout? What did we just teach the kid? Had a choice. No consequences. So wherever you make the expectations clear, if you do this, that's going to happen. Wherever you draw the lines, I think some parents draw the lines real tight, some a little looser. Wherever you choose to draw them, when those bounds are exceeded, there has to be consequences, and they have to hurt. If it's a timeout, go to your room and play with your toys as a consequence, that's not going to enforce that it was painful to disobey. That's just, a, right? There have to be painful consequences. Nate? I think it's helpful to um, define discipline because I've seen a lot of people that are disciplining their kids and what that means is having a talk with them. And so what they're doing is they are being reinforced that when I do this behavior, I'm going to have to sit that we're talking to. It's not terrible. And it's not going to prevent that behavior from happening. It's terrible to me sitting and arguing the two-year-old. That's consequence to me. What does she mean? I don't think I learned with my difficult kids that are out in the house dying. If the consequence for the kid is punishing you, what good is that doing? Well, let's finish. We have a few more minutes to finish under um, the, the, as we get closer to the other person here, posture and poor communication. Again, we're simply asking in conflict you have with other people and you're trying to seek to resolve it, particularly close relationships in the church, your spouse, your kids, whatever. Think about your posture. Do you enter this with a spirit of mutual submission? One thing we'll see when we exegete the Ephesians 5 passage on marriage is that the doorway into the marriage passage, which begins in verse 22, is a command to submit to one another in the fear of the Lord in verse 21. And that's a participle predicated on being filled with the Holy Spirit in verse 18. And so Paul couldn't be more clear. Don't try marriage unless you're going to be filled with the Holy Spirit. You'll never have an attitude of mutual submission to your brothers and sisters or your spouse without being filled with the Spirit. So do I enter this resolution, do I look at this relationship with a spirit of mutual submission? I exist to bring you good. That's Jesus' posture towards us. He is blessing us through his triumph over death and our sins. And he calls us to do the same. So do I, do I have a lack of mutual submission? Can I tolerate ambiguity? People see things differently. Sometimes there's more light shed on something else. Some of us have higher and lower levels of tolerating ambiguity. And sometimes that's the source of our conflicts. Just realize different people are in different places in their ability to to tolerate ambiguity. And can I appreciate differences? This person's different than me, they're wired differently than me, they have different intellect, interests, approaches to life. They're different. And I, I think I've told you that some of the failings in my own marriage was expecting Janice to be like me. Because I liked myself. I didn't know I was a big sinner when I got married. And so why can't you be like me? Well, the reason is, number one, she's a woman. Number two, she had a very different background. Number three, she's different. God created her different. And I needed those differences to make me more of a man, to show me my sin, and to make us a better team. 
It would be a very boring marriage if Janice was just like me. Although I, I admit, sometimes that's what I want. Because I want the wrong thing, maybe. So your posture, and then finally, uh, poor communication. And I think we've alluded to it before. Is there clarity in what you're saying? Are you listening, obfuscating, really not saying what you mean? And do you lead with accusation? This is a really good way to foster conflict. Start with an accusation. And actually, we'll uh, tease that out more next week. On the other hand, out was in the front. Yeah, I was thinking we might get to both of these. How naive of me that we do two and two handouts in one. But um, so those are some things to think about. Stop. Do the inward work. Look at what's going on in my heart, my thinking, my perspectives. Where's my pride at work? And this is going to help us with our conflicts. Any further thoughts, additions, contradictions, contributions? Feel free to disagree. Any of this make sense? Resonate? How many of you would say you're by nature self-reflective and these are the kinds of things you think about when it comes to conflict? A couple of you. So it's really important, isn't it? Because you know, conflict is very raw and technicolor at a surface level, but we've got to get deeper at what's going on. So let me pray for you. Lord, I pray for my brothers and sisters, for myself, for Janice. We know, as we saw a couple weeks ago, you ordain, you allow our conflicts to show us how much we need you. You allow them so that conflict, well resolved, makes for a better relationship. And we do believe your word calls us to think uh, inwardly, deeply, to consider our motives, our pride, our presuppositions, uh, the history, how we're communicating. All these things are vitally important so that when conflict inevitably comes, we are equipped to deal with it in a way that honors you, glorifies you, that models you, the great conflict resolver, sending your son to that hideous uh, death on the cross. So thank you for grace. Thank you for your spirit. Thank you for the hope we should have of working through conflict. Um, so give us, Holy Spirit, the, the uh, sensibilities, the, the abilities to stop, to slow down, to think, to reflect, and to understand ourselves better, our friends, spouses better. You'd be glorified in the way we, uh, we resolve conflict. For Jesus' sake, amen. All right, so next week, this guy.